Good morning, everyone. I'd ask you to please rise for the reading of God's Word this morning. Scripture reading is taken from the book of John, chapter 15, starting at verse 10. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Please be seated. We are uh, involved in a study on the 15th chapter of John, which reveals to us how we can live the spiritual life organically. And uh, this is the third part of that series, so we're going to answer all the questions we've kind of left dangling and see how this all fits together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house, to just worship you like this. And thank you that we are in the midst of a a great adventure where you're doing things that uh, are just beyond anything that we can achieve. And uh, we just rejoice in how you're able to do these things through us. We know that apart from you, we can do nothing. So Lord, our lives are at your disposal that uh, you may accomplish all that you have determined to do through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a guy back there that looks a lot like my son, Jonathan. If I had better glasses, I could could actually identify him, but great to have you here, Jonathan. So in this series, I want to encourage you to live organically, not mechanically. Let me explain. The Industrial Revolution changed the world forever. How many of you remember that way back in the day? Beginning about 1760, it was a quantum leap in terms of urbanization and mass production. It was characterized by efficiency, prosperity, and momentum. Every day in every way, life was getting better. And of course, there was all that uh, wonderful colored smoke coming out of the chimneys, especially from the asbestos plant and the sulfur dioxide factory. But everyone thought it was worth it because uh, the results were amazing. A journey that previously took weeks was now only a matter of hours. Humanity went from slow motion to full speed ahead. Machines and technology, that's what progress is all about. 
Now, to a certain extent, that same mentality has overflowed into our spiritual lives. Modern religious consumers want efficiency. They expect to see results at a faster pace. And so there's all this teaching that actually tries to turn our faith into some kind of spiritual technology. The priority for pastors, for example, has shifted away from soul care towards administration and management. And everything is becoming a technique, whether it's raising our children or getting healed or answers to prayer or overcoming addictions. If you do A, B, C, and D, you will get X, Y, and Z in 10 minutes or less. Now, I've been watching this trend for decades, and I've come to to the conclusion that you can't really reduce the spiritual life to a technology. There are no factories that can mass-produce faith. The Christian life is not to be lived mechanically. We experience it organically. And that takes a lot more time. But the end result is worth it because we will be bearing fruit, much fruit, fruit that shall last with absolutely no harm to the environment. So we began by saying that fruitfulness is the secret of fulfillment. A fulfilled life comes when we discover why God created us. It's not about how much we accomplish. It's more about our attitude. It's bearing fruit. Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what fulfillment looks like, like, and that's why we were created. And if you're that kind of a person, you will have a lasting impact And you will have no regrets in the end. But how do we become like that? Well, verse 5 says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So you're going to bear fruit. It doesn't say you might bear fruit, but you will bear fruit as you abide. We talked about that last week. The only way to bear fruit is to remain organically connected to the vine. We maintain that close fellowship with Jesus so that his life flows into you and through you into the world. Paul talked about that in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I've been crucified with Christ, but I no longer live. Christ lives in me. So if you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit. That's as far as we got. So how do we abide? What is the secret of abiding? Look at verse 10. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Abiding is the natural result of obedience. So the secret of fulfillment is fruitfulness. The secret of fruitfulness is fellowship, and the secret of fellowship is faithfulness. Faithfully obeying all that Jesus commanded us. If you obey, you will abide, and if you abide, you will bear fruit. So obedience is the key, and also the problem. Because that word makes our life a lot more complicated. 
I feel exhausted just thinking about it. It's like getting homework. Last week you told me to relax, and this week it's back to the grind. Here comes another long checklist. Where am I going to find the time? Whenever obedience is stressed, some, some of us become like Martha in the kitchen, worried and upset about many things, frustrated that there's not enough help. Lord, don't you care? If you want me to do this, you have to help me. But maybe we're thinking about this all wrong. And there's a verse that helps us understand how we need to look at obedience. Obeying Jesus should not be wearing you out. If it is, there's, you got it, there's something going on that needs to be changed. Because in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, it says this. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. This is love for God, to obey His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. God's commands are not burdensome. Obeying should not be wearing you out. And if you're finding His commands burdensome, we're going to have to get you some tech support. Well, no, that's not right, because we're not doing this with technology. We're doing it organically. So the answer has to be somewhere in the vineyard. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. Obedience is the key to abiding. But it's not a burdensome obedience. But when it comes to obedience, there are two big challenges that we face. The first one has to do with muscle power. We don't have the muscle power to do the things that God wants us to do. Well, obviously, that problem is already solved by the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, we have supernatural power to obey everything that Jesus commanded us. We looked at this verse last week, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Problem solved. The second challenge is motivation. Why would we even want to do this? We're going to go to heaven anyway. So why do we have to obey all these commands? Can't we just do this multiple choice? I'll just kind of pick the ones that I would like to do and, and just sort of ignore some of the other ones. Sometimes I don't feel like obeying. Often I'm too busy. So the real problem is not muscle power, it's motivation. Why would I seek first his kingdom? Because I've already got a very full agenda. So when it comes to obedience, there's a conflict of interest. How do we resolve this? I'm glad you asked because I'd like to show you how. The answer is found in the Old Testament. I want you to consider the experience of one of the shrewdest businessmen in the Bible. While others worked hard for a living, Jacob was always looking for a shortcut. How to get the maximum results with the minimum amount of effort. On a strenuous day, he would burn 35, maybe 36 calories. He was one of the drones in the hive. But how can you argue with success? He even managed to get his brother's birthright for a lousy bowl of soup. Wow! That's what you call a prophet. That's like winning the lottery. 
But then one day, Jacob met a young lady named Rachel. And it was as if the sun rose in her eyes. You know what I'm talking about. So after turning on the charm and comparing her to a summer's day, Jacob went to her father to ask for her hand in marriage. And of course, Jacob was willing to provide a dowry. How would you like a nice steaming bowl of soup? Soup for you? Well, not this time. They made a contract that required Jacob to work seven years to get Rachel. He was sentenced to seven years hard labor, and there were no shortcuts in this deal, no time off for good behavior. Seven years, and those were the worst years of his life. He once pulled a muscle, and it hurt for weeks, and eventually he was close to burnout. Well, that's not really what happened. That's an alternative fact. Here's what actually happened. Genesis 29.20 says this. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Wow. That seven years seemed like nothing because of his love for her. He had the right motivation. Jacob worked 364 weeks of honest, hard work, but it was pure joy because of his motivation. Love eliminated all of the strain and the stress and the complaints and the excuses. You see, you can obey God for all kinds of reasons. Because it's your duty, because of guilt, because you're afraid of the consequences, because people expect it, because you want recognition. But the best motivation for obedience is John 14, 15, where Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you will obey. And those commands will not be burdensome. That's your motivation. Love is what overcomes the inertia factor or any drag coefficient. Love is the secret of perpetual motion. Love transforms obedience from a drudgery or a duty into a delight. Jacob served seven years for Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. Evan Hopkins writes, while faith makes all things possible, love makes all things easy. And didn't Jesus say something about that? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It isn't if you don't have love, but love is the motivation that makes a difference. So if you love Jesus, you will obey. And if you obey, you will abide. And if you abide, you will bear fruit. That's the workflow of the Christian life. It's all organic. So I rest my case, except for one thing. How do you love Jesus? How do you actually develop this kind of love for Jesus? 
You know, I love Jesus, but I don't know if I love him that much. Most of us still need to develop this motivation. If loving Jesus is our goal, how does this happen? I've spent a whole life trying to figure this out. Because for me, it was not love at first sight. And I'm not the only one. When Peter figured out who Jesus was, it says in Luke 5, 8, he fell at his knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I didn't start even loving Jesus until about eight years after I was saved. And in the 40 years since, there have been other times when my love has grown cold. And I found that loving Jesus is not necessarily a natural instinct for us because for one thing, we don't have a lot in common. His ways are not like my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts as the heavens are higher than the earth. And he's always asking me to do things I don't want to do. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. In the beginning, I thought he wanted me me to wear uncomfortable clothes like a, a suit and tie. And I was supposed to read a translation of the Bible that I really didn't understand. And and he often made me feel guilty, or at least I assumed it was him. And sure, I was grateful for his blessings, but there were also a lot of disappointments. There were prayers that weren't answered. There were problems that weren't solved. There's a lot of people whose hearts have been broken. And in their soul, there's, there's litigation. They're suing God for malpractice. Some of the followers of Christ have kind of a footnote faith. There's an asterisk. Yes, I believe. But why didn't you help me? Loving Jesus could be the biggest challenge we will ever face. We know that Jesus is the most unpopular person in our society. His name has become a profanity. People who only know Jesus superficially mock him, despise him, and blame him for everything. But of course, we're different. We're his fans. Isn't that enough? Is there more? Well, yes, there is. Because we could be his friends. John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. This explains the problem I had loving Jesus. I began the Christian life like a servant reporting for duty. Okay, I'm saved, now what do I do? Where's the list? I began with obedience. I started in the middle And I totally missed the first part. And I think that's why there's a lot of deserters and dropouts. If you start with obedience, cold turkey, you're going to get compassion fatigue. You're going to become weary in well-doing. And there's even a risk that you'll become cynical. There's a lot of cynical Christians around. Okay, God, I did my part. When are you going to do your part? There's people who believe and obey grudgingly. Oh, but there's so much more. So much more than that. 
I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know. I've called you friends for everything I've learned from my Father I've made known to you. A truly fruitful life doesn't begin with abiding or obeying or even loving. It begins with something else. Something has to come before that. A fruitful life begins with, the word is in here, knowing. Everything I've learned from my Father, I've made known to you. A servant doesn't know, but a friend knows because Jesus reveals it. The main reason we don't love Jesus enough is because we hardly know him. We know who he is. We know what he did. I gave my life to him years ago. What else you got? Well, how about this? Listen to Paul. After a whole lifetime of experiencing Christ, he said this, Philippians 3.10, writing from that jail in Rome, near the end of his life, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing his sufferings. Paul realized he still had such a long way to go in really knowing Christ. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Do you know Jesus in the power of his resurrection? Now what did the resurrection do? The resurrection basically solved the biggest problem you'll ever have. The problem of sin and death. Jesus had the power to solve the biggest problem in your life. And we know that. But do we also know that Jesus also has the power to solve smaller problems that we faced? See, my problem is that for me, Jesus is bigger than the last problem he solved and a little bit smaller than the next problem I'll face. So i got to know him better. I got to increase my understanding of him and the power of his resurrection. How long do you think it would take to know Jesus in the power of his resurrection? At least a lifetime. And the fellowship of sharing his sufferings. What have you learned about Jesus through your suffering? You know, suffering often takes your mind totally off Jesus. We're thinking about ourselves. We're feeling sorry for ourselves. We're heartbroken. What suffering really should do is give us an insight into the sacrifice Jesus made for us. If I experience injustice, it's not poor me. It's, Lord, this helps me understand a little bit of the injustice you experienced on my behalf. We learn more and more about Jesus through our suffering. It's one of the greatest teachers that we have to reveal Jesus to us. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing his suffering. There is so much more to know. And this is the most important part of this whole process, getting to know Jesus, the height and breadth and depth of his love. So that's why Hebrews 12, 2 says, we have to focus on him. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. 
I think this is where we need to apply 90% of our effort. Because to know Him is to love Him. And if you, if you love Him, you will obey Him. And if you obey Him, you will abide. And if you abide, you will bear fruit. That is a process that begins by knowing Christ. And that is the key. That's where we have to focus our attention to fix our eyes on Jesus. I have to also say that this original outline came from a small booklet written by Warren Wearsby. So I want to give him credit for that. I think it's one of the best ways to understand the whole Christian life. It's so simple. It's all organic. It's a natural, supernatural process. As you focus on Jesus, you develop a loving friendship that motivates your faithfulness, that promotes fellowship, that results in fruitfulness, which makes for a fulfilled life. And the most important part of this process is knowing Christ. That's where you need to spend most of your time. And if you follow my method, it'll take you three years, seven months, two weeks, and five days to complete. But if you want to do it right, it'll take the rest of your life. Because after 40 plus years, I'm still getting to know him. I'm discovering things that just blow my mind. And this is going to continue for at least another 10,000 years. You see, I think another way to understand this is like marriage. Why do we get married? Well, I suppose if you're on a farm in Russia, or even in rural Romania, where the team is going, you might choose a wife with good teeth and a strong back who will help you clear the land. Let's go, Natasha. The sun's already up. But is that what it's all about. It's very practical, but is that what it's all about? Why do we get married? It's not because we found somebody who might be useful to us. There's more important considerations. There's companionship and cuddling and binge-watching Downton Abbey. When we're looking for a wife, we're not looking for a servant. We're looking for a soulmate. The most precious thing in all the world. Someone who will be our best friend. And coincidentally, that's exactly what Jesus Christ is looking for from you. That's why I no longer call you servants. I've called you a friend. Because you understand, you know. And now I can take everything else that I've learned from my father and I can make it known to you. That's why this is precisely where the enemy will aim his attack. The enemy uses diversionary tactics to get you so busy and so preoccupied or so confused that you won't have the time or the mental clarity to focus on knowing Christ. So you'll just settle for obedience. As long as I'm obeying, I guess I'm okay. I guess that'll, that'll do. And so we know Christ, but we only know Him superficially. Satan does not mind if you shift into high gear in your obedience, because without the right motivation, he knows eventually you're going to run out of gas and you're going to give up. The enemy targets the most strategic point. 
It's all about Jesus. So the fulfilled life is not about finding yourself. It's about Christ finding you and calling you into a relationship that extends into eternity, a relationship that gives you an incredible opportunity of knowing Christ and growing in that knowledge year after year. And of course, along the way, you will also be bearing fruit. And you'll be bearing fruit because you are abiding. And that came through your obedience. And that was motivated by love. And that came because you know him. So a fulfilled life is not about finding yourself. It's about finding your soulmate. So I leave that with you. That's your assignment from here to eternity. Lord, it is truly mind-boggling to think that you would want to have that kind of relationship with us. We could understand that uh, you want us to accomplish things, to build your kingdom and do all the things that scriptures say. And you do but you want us to have the kind of love that will turn all of that into a joy. Jesus said, I've told you these things, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Lord, we thank you so much that this is the opportunity of a lifetime. Whatever else we expect to accomplish in life or experience in life, this this far, far outweighs them all. This is the greatest opportunity we'll ever have. Thank you for giving it to us this morning. And thank you that we can continue with our lives today and this week, fixing our eyes on Jesus, getting to know you more and more. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and affirm that in our closing song.